Welcome to Practical Theology, a podcast series by Battle Creek Friends Church. Our hope is that by listening, you feel equipped in your faith to speak out in confidence about what you believe and live it out. We're here to help you seek the Lord throughout your day. So here's your host, Bible teacher, father, husband, and guy who likes cookies, Leo Wilson. Hello and welcome to episode 7 of Practical Theology. Today we finish our conversation on God, morals, and ethics. We have one final ethical system to talk about, and that's graded absolutism. And when we started this conversation, we started it in the context of Romans 13. The idea of obeying world leaders, governments, authorities, and how there are exceptions to this based on moral law. And what we'll see in graded absolutism is how we should reason through these moral conflicts, as we've come to call them. Situations where it appears as though you're doing something against God either way, such as in the concept of what Rahab had to do when her countrymen were looking for the Israelite spies. She lied to them to protect their lives and is praised for it. Same thing with the Hebrew midwives when Pharaoh tells them to kill all the male children that the Israelite people are having, they tell him they couldn't do it because the Hebrew women, the Israelite women, just gave birth so quickly they couldn't get there in time. And they are praised for disobeying the Pharaoh's law and upholding God's higher moral law. Well, let's justify this, right? Two biblical passages where we talk about the different levels of moral laws. The first one, and this is the first essential element, by the way, of graded absolutism, what we'll talk about today. The first essential element, there are higher and lower moral laws. Matthew 23, 23 says this, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former, you blind guides. You strain out the gnat, but swallow a camel. Notice there the statement of neglected the more important matters of law, and then it says justice, mercy, and faithfulness. It compares that to tithing, for example, and ceremonial cleanliness. Well, with that, you can infer that Christ is saying there are different hierarchies for laws, and that would help you decide if if you were conflicted with which one to follow. It's possible that there would be obvious based on the one has a higher moral application. Also in Matthew 5.19, he says this, Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. The idea of least of these commands. So in that case, he's saying, look, even if the small commands or even the small moral rules that I have, um, if you were to neglect those, that's not good. So you see there's still a hierarchy there that he's uh, implying with how he's using the words. When we talk about these, we talk about laws in three categories. The first is the moral law, which is laws based on God's nature. These laws would not change. They're part of the unchanging character of God. The second category would be ceremonial laws. And these were laws laws like the Old Testament gave about uh, just like what we just saw there, the cleanliness, um, food laws, dietary laws about like eating bacon. And these ceremonial laws we see are changed in the New Testament. Why is that? The book of Hebrews talks about that, but when Christ comes, 
he is a new priest, and the priesthood is allowed to change the laws. Those ceremonial laws are based on the priesthood. Christ does change that when he gives Peter the vision and says all these unclean animals on the blanket to take and eat. And Peter says, no, I can't do that. Christ says, look, I've called them clean. One, he's showing us his authority to be able to change the ceremonial laws. And two, he does change the ceremonial laws. The third category is civil law, which is where the Romans 13 passage interacts with the moral laws. And in Titus 3.1, we see this. We see Paul saying, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always be gentle toward everyone. This idea of doing whatever is good but still listening to the authorities does show the, uh, the implications of goodness, the idea of doing something that's good, not just doing anything they say, but these things that are good, these things that are would bring peace, for example, that are considerate. So that gets us through the idea that there are different hierarchies in moral laws and any law and how you could categorize a moral law to a civil or a ceremonial law. The second point is this, there are moral conflicts, right? We talked about Rahab, the midwives. In prior ethical codes, we talked about how, well, they're not real moral conflicts, they're just perceived. God always gives a different way out. But this is where Augustine struggled. He struggled because he knew that there were these moral conflicts. And even when he was talking about this in prior ethical systems, where the greatest sin is lying, it breaks relationships, as we talked about, the idea of systems where, okay, yes, you're in a bad situation, but you can receive forgiveness, but it's still sinning and you have a problem. In this one, we just acknowledge that there are moral conflicts and there's no getting around it. It's not that there's a third way out. It's that the situation sucks. The third attribute of this is no guilt is imputed for the unavoidable. And this is really where this separates from the other two. Reason dictates that a just God isn't going to punish you for a situation that you could not avoid. Think about this. If you and your spouse were expecting to have an anniversary dinner and they don't show up, but they're an hour late. And when they show up, you're not happy. It's very inconvenient. You've had this special day planned, but then you find out that it was because they had to save someone's life who was dying on the side of the road. Would you be mad at them for missing dinner? Would you impugn guilt on them? Or No, you wouldn't. You would understand that the situation, although unfortunate to you, clearly they made the right choice. And there's no punishment you're going to give them for making that right choice. Well, the same thing applies to God. And another thing, when we talk about how reason dictates this, some people have said in the past to me um, and others, like, well, that yeah, use your reason, but God doesn't work that way. Well, two notes. One, God is reasonable that he you see it in scripture even though sometimes it it's transcends our reason but nonetheless there's still reason there and secondly when they make that argument they're using reason when they do that so that's not really solid to begin with it's okay to use reason to talk about why we believe in this different levels of moral laws and how to apply them and how no guilt is impugned to people on the unavoidable the prior mentioned stories, like the Rahab story, the Hebrew midwives, that shows praise for the proper action in a moral conflict. And that would be, I mean, not only is it showing that you're not guilty, but to praise somebody would show that they've made the right choice. And maybe praise is necessary because it was the right choice in a hard situation. So 
if, if there's any practical side to this, probably the most practical and important is the side that points to the cross. And think about the cross, for example, in this idea of hierarchy of laws. On the cross, the unjust was w- would have occurred, right? Because Christ was killed for our sins, but he didn't do anything wrong. That would be extremely unjust. If there was a purpose that was a higher purpose than the satisfying justice, then that would make sense. And, and, and indeed there is. God wanted to show mercy, and this mercy took priority over justice. Now, keep in mind, it's not in lieu of justice. Justice still had to be served of the two that were happening, but God knew that mercy was important to show, and it was a higher moral value for him. And therefore, he takes our sins on the cross to have that relationship with us. But it doesn't go in lieu of justice, which is, I think, the other great point. There are, there are no exceptions to the rule. There are exemptions to the rule in this graded absolutism, right? It doesn't mean that the, oh, well, in this case, you don't have to obey it. no. You're supposed to obey it, but in this case, you're exempt from obeying it. And I think that also helps with the situation of what we're going to definitely talk about more, the moral conflict. Understand just the definition of moral conflict is that it does suck. It is a bad situation. The definition of a conflict would be a bad situation. In moral conflicts that Christians are involved in, it is not a great situation. And even the solution will not be ideal, but it will still be a good solution, one that's even worthy of praise. But it still doesn't make it easy. So let's talk about the first practical one. We've talked about governing authorities. I think I've given enough examples of that. Let's talk about police officers. I have a police officer friend of mine. Let's call him Bo. And he was talking to me and giving me this idea of people who struggle on the force sometimes with having to shoot someone to having to take a human life. And before I go any further, I should mention one thing. I do know that people will not agree with everything I am going to say in this next section here. And that's totally fine. Um, My intent isn't to win an argument or a point. My intent is to give you practical concepts so that if these situations occur to you or loved ones in life or people that you're witnessing to, that you can help them navigate this in a godly fashion and also know that there are answers to this. It isn't just a, you can close your eyes and just say, it just I have no way out of this. It's just terrible. Um, yes, it's terrible, but there is hope in it and there's also reasons to believe that you've done the right thing. So I understand there's room for disagreement. Uh, I'm not saying this is an ultimatum, but this is meant to start conversations and concepts so that you can sort these out in your life now before these become reality because when they become reality in your life or other people's lives it'll be too late to go through this um, for them we need this understanding before these happen so in the case of a police officer when they are faced in a situation where somebody is about to take someone else's life and they have to make a choice as a matter of fact you could say it's one person trying to take out seven people you know let's say it's a gunman in a in a school and they have a choice they can shoot the gunman and save the lives of the other people but then they are in a bad situation because they had to take the life of somebody well here's the deal here's why this is a moral conflict the moral conflict is this you can take one life and save all the lives of the students or you cannot take the life and then 
all the lives of the students would be taken. Now, is there any way to know how those happen? Some people can sit there and say those third way, right? Well, I'm just going to, why? We have to let God take care of it. Okay, but that works both ways. If for the person who wants to be passive on this and say, well, you don't have to shoot the gunman, like God can take care of it. Like, right, the, like the gunman could go and shoot the kids and God could stop the bullet. But understand, he could do the same thing with yours. The police officer can use that same argument. It doesn't get you out of it. Uh, if you want to use that argument, fine, but understand that's what the police officer can use when he is pulling the trigger, he or she. And with that, why do I even want to share this? I would, I would, I, the burden that we have to face when we are in a moral conflict, like a, for a police officer, taking a human life is not an easy thing. It will never be an easy thing. It should never be an easy thing. It should be a moral conflict when it has to happen because it is violating something that God has said. But he's also said to love people. He's, it's also being um, an act of omission to not protect other people when you know their lives are in danger. So this, for my police officer friends that are out there, know this. Yeah, the situation sucks and it's a moral conflict. And don't feel like you failed by having to do this. And not only that, you can be praised by God for such a situation by, as you do daily, offering your lives up, you know, to protect other people's lives, to protect laws for freedoms. These are all super significant. I would hope that through talking something like this, you would have a peace knowing that the reason why you feel the way you do when that happens, that you possibly feel the way you do when that happens, is because it is a moral conflict. One person at a conference I was speaking at asked the question, it's like, I think the situation, speaking of police officers, firefighters, like when we get into a situation like that, we see something horrible like that. I feel like, I feel like I want to ask for forgiveness. I feel like I want to talk to God. And it took a while to chew on this, but it totally makes sense if you think about it. In a moral conflict, you are in a way that God did not intend. And as much as given what we've talked about, you don't have to ask for forgiveness for doing that you are definitely going to want to seek the presence of God, though, when you do that. Because those two choices were ungodly choices. They weren't things that he wanted to happen in this world. It wasn't intended to be like that. So as a bearer of his image, you're going to want to seek his peace. You're going to want to be in his presence for his comfort because that's the only way out of that situation for comfort. Just to shake it off and swallow it up, isn't going to bring the peace that you're going to want. It's peace that he can offer in that situation that you'll want. How about we go on to another one? How about we talk about uh, divorce? Um, this is a good one where we, it just happens too much in the church as it is. And one of the problems that we have is divorce is clearly a sin. And we see this in different passages where it talks about leaving your wife or leaving your spouse or leaving your husband. And what's interesting to me is the one exception that it gives to that is the idea of marital unfaithfulness. And when we start to understand divorce, no excuse. Like, first of all, you have to get into a moral conflict for this to be the case. Just because you're not happy, that's not a sin to not be happy. And therefore, you want to leave your spouse. That doesn't give you justification. That doesn't make it a moral conflict. What would make it a moral conflict is you're being abused and your life is in danger. And so now you need to either suffer the consequences of, of having your life endangered or 
to get a divorce, moral conflict. Maybe even more intentional is the idea of having children in an abusive relationship and needing to get your children out of the abusive relationship because they can't do near as many compensations or things like that with them and so they're even more at risk and so with that you can you could separate i think this is why this passage is in scripture like this for this marital unfaithfulness and it's very forgivable even if even if you maybe that's important to say too even if it wasn't a moral conflict you can still be forgiven for this sin this was in the meth the ethical code that we talked about prior to this you know these things if they've been in your past and I'm not trying to beat anybody up here. You can still ask for forgiveness for this. But inside of a moral conflict, there are things, situations like this, where it's just, it sucks, period. Uh, not everybody likes to hear that. Everybody wants to hear, well, they should have to work it out, or I, I just don't see it that way. And, and I also think this is important. It is interesting to me the one time in Scripture where God is talking about marriage between the church and Christ. The only time that that relationship has ever ended is when we, the, the bride or the church, would leave him. Then that relationship is ended, but he never left her. Now, I'm not implying this to male or female, but I am giving the concept of the idea that um, in relationships, that idea of divorce also happens when you're abandoned you have no choice, and Scripture talks about that application as well. But please keep in mind that divorce and remarriage are two different things. So many times people don't even acknowledge that difference in scripture. They just think divorce automatically means you're marrying somebody else. That is not the case. Divorce and remarriage are two different concepts in scripture. To get a divorce is one thing. To get remarried is another. And I'm not going to define those points out, but just to know that they are in scripture, to know that they should be treated separately, and to know that sometimes these situations come up especially that of divorce, in a moral conflict. And sometimes that can be handled just by separation. But I think for that concept, I'll just point that out for now and leave it out there. And you can chew on it through passages like Mark 10, 11, and 12, Luke 16, 18, Matthew 19, 9, 1 Corinthians 7, with the idea of understanding divorce. And work those out with your pastor or whoever else in your life to seek the best resolution of those. But no, in any of those situations, it's still a moral conflict. And you still are going to want to seek the peace of God. And it's still not going to feel good when it comes out. I think the final one I'll talk on is the idea of, uh, I'm going to categorize it as active euthanasia and passive euthanasia. And the reason why is because it addresses both topics of abortion, but also end-of-life categories, um, you know, like assisted suicide. So what it means to be active or active euthanasia is to take a human life. Passive means to allow death. So, for example, the idea of a, um, when it comes to infants, a passive type of euthanasia would be the child is born, but you're like, well, it can't feed himself. I didn't kill it. It just couldn't feed itself. He couldn't feed himself or her, he, she couldn't feed herself. Yep. Okay. But that's a really lame excuse. And the, the other part of that is, is clearly as um, the world is built, you are responsible when that life comes to feed it. That would be the natural implication, right? The idea of how we feed young through breastfeeding or whatever other means they would have. Uh, it seems like the design of people has been to care for, to produce things for caring for children. The idea of the active euthanasia, clearly abortion is uh, not even a moral conflict in all situations, um, but there are actually some situations where it becomes like that. 
imagine if a mother has a um, a fallopian tube pregnancy, right? These, I understand, I'm not a doctor, um, can be deadly to both the child and the mother. What is the mother to do? Could she abort? Is that even allowed? Are you really going to say such a thing? Well, I'll at least pose a scenario. Imagine if that does happen. There's a fallopian tube pregnancy and it's furthered out and the problem comes up and there has to be a choice. The mother can try and say, I'll just leave it in, in the hands and I won't do anything, be passive about it. And both her and the child can die. And that might lead to comfort because she didn't have to make the decision to abort a, a fetus that was in the fallopian tube. But at the same point in time, the concept would be this. Let's say there were four other children in the family that were alive. And now she had to make a choice for these young children that she could be alive in their mother or she could make this risk and try to go through this pregnancy and hope that everything works out. Well, that would be a moral conflict, right? Because now you're trying to show love to four other children to grow up without a mother to have to go through that. I have never lost a parent. Um, and I have dealt with people who have, and I feel a great pain for them. I don't know what it would be like. And that's why I'm not answering a direct question. I'm just giving hypothetical situations to this to understand. You can see how if you're playing the greater love, which is what the graded absolutism is. I really didn't go into that much, but it's not the lesser of two evils, but the greater love. What is the higher moral command? What is the greater command of love? This is with the police officer. How, you know, how does he look at this saving life versus taking a life? This is with the idea of you know, a marriage, how do you save a marriage versus take a marriage? How do you save a life in a marriage such as children versus, you know, um, sacrificing the marriage itself? These are all still moral conflicts, but you're looking at the greater love. And in this case, with the idea of a active euthanasia, there would be this scenario that I could see that would be very hard and it would be a moral conflict. What about end of life situations? This is real. This will come up with a lot of people with parents and loved ones. As they grow old, there is a distinction that is made, which is the idea of withholding unnatural means is different than withholding natural means. In other words, it's one thing as we talked about the child to like withhold food from a child because they can't feed themselves. It's expected that as an adult, you're going to feed an infant. That, that just makes so much sense. Even in nature, we see this. But is it expected that you would feed somebody that's a 90-year-old on their deathbed and, and then how far does this go like if you can't feed them orally does it count to go through a feeding tube and at what point are you playing um god in the god of life and death and once again here's a hypothetical and this is probably one of the ones that people disagree with me on most and it's just because there's so much emotion involved and once again i'm not giving you an answer i'm giving you concepts at some point in time, when you use artificial means to sustain life, you will approach a line where that life isn't even natural anymore. And wherever that line is just shows the idea that you're starting to play God by artificially sustaining life to a point that is ridiculous. This is why for a lot of people, if you're listening and you have children and you're like, man, I don't ever want them to go through that, have this conversation now, write up a document, do something so they understand like, hey, I don't want to go past this point. You know, if I have to be on a ventilator and my blood has to be, you know, circulated by a machine and I have to be fed intravenously and like, like you make those comments now so your children know 
those situations so they don't have to sweat those situations out and stress about am I killing my mother or my father because that is definitely the thought and let's paint a picture like some people would say look I'll do whatever it takes okay so you go through all the hospital bills and you're going on artificial breathing artificial blood circulation you're doing the intravenous feeding and the person's unresponsive and you're like whatever it takes and you have a family you have you have children you have a wife um i'm playing the role of the husband i guess because that's my role right now and um you have to make a decision on your parent well you could just take whatever it takes and cash out all your 401k and sell your house and your van because medical costs are going to crew up and after a year you know you're going to try different things how far does this go well leo clearly life's important oh i know but remember this greater love concept all those lives are important how far do you affect the life of your children and your wife? How far do you take it? Well, if it's only money, we're not saying it's only money. Think about this. You, you afford health care. You afford to live in a house that's warm as we're going through a cold spell in Michigan right now. You, you go through all these scenarios and now you're going to be loving a person that is artificially kept alive to a significant degree and sacrificing the three others in the scenario and not only that, putting them in jeopardy health-wise, possibly. I, I actually know of one story where the person sold everything and lived in a van um, because they just couldn't bring themselves to do that. And to, to, you know, to make the call. And it's like, I get it's hard. It's a moral conflict. But can you see how there's a balance there? And I don't know what the right answer is. I, I don't know the situation that you're in. Some people are like, it doesn't matter. I'm never going to pull that cord. Okay, then understand what you are doing by doing that. There is a cost to being in a moral conflict. It doesn't matter what end of it it's on. There is a cost. And that's where we need to seek the face of God. Like seek him out and, and find out what we need to do. But doing nothing, I don't believe, is the answer. We need to be able to think about what it is in love and think about the situation. And also know that whatever position you put yourself in, you can be forgiven. But God can work it out. You might still be held responsible for the, the poor choice that you made. You know, if you didn't listen to the least of these and you chose to follow one of the least of these commands just to make yourself feel better. But in the end, you're responsible for loving others and loving God. So here's my hope. I hope through all these concepts, um, and that's what they were, concepts. I wasn't, if you heard me say in this situation, you should do this. Um, I either made a mistake or you misheard, but I'll take the responsibility. I made a mistake and I apologize. None of these were supposed to be told, this is what you need to do in this situation. They were to give you ideas of where a moral conflict would exist and how that moral conflict plays out and how you could see a path to either scenario working out. All right, with that, my prayer is this, that during a moral conflict, that through all this time that we've shared on this podcast, that you would have the knowledge to go and live it out.